And thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 182, Love Beat Sand. As April gave way to May in 1942, the system of protecting merchant ships off America's east coast was coming together, but it was still just notes on a paper, or as the Navy summed it up, slowly but surely, which was nice for the Merchant Marine in late 1942, but it wasn't helping all that much at the moment. Basically, and everyone involved knew this, it came down to numbers. On average, about 35 tankers or supply ships were leaving various ports in the Gulf of Mexico or the Caribbean Sea, and they were all heading for the northeast corner of the U.S. coastline each day, where factories and workers were waiting, that or heading to Canadian waters to join up with a convoy about to cross the Atlantic. All this meant that, each day, about 140 ships were traveling north between Florida and New York, and another 140 heading south. And breaking this down even further, this meant that about 60 ships were passing by the North Carolina coast, heading south, or another 60 ships passing by, going north. The perfect spot for hunting, if one were a German subcrew. And for each ship that did not complete its journey, this weakened the possibility of the Western Allies invading Europe, helping Great Britain stay in the war, or, but not least, supplying Russia so she could at least survive the restarted offensive in the East by millions of Axis troops. Now, even before Pearl Harbor, the American Merchant Marine and German subs were having a go at each other, and the British, veterans of this war already, was telling the U.S. Navy that well-armed, sufficient numbers of escorts were needed to make sure supplies got through. But Chief of Naval Operations Admiral King did not agree with this. He wanted his destroyers actively hunting enemy subs, not babysitting merchant ships. Still, Admiral King had come around to the idea of convoys by the spring, but only begrudgingly. Those that were really pushing him were not the merchant sailors themselves, well, they were, but they were not being listened to, but rather the shipbuilders, who could only replace sunk ships so fast, and those companies underwriting the vessels. Again, politics and money are never far off in considerations of war. So, the good news was that Admiral King had come around. The bad news was that his new attitude could not just create destroyers out of thin air. At the end of March, a meeting of naval officers deduced that, in order to offer escorts for civilian ships traveling north or south off the U.S. eastern coast, 31 destroyers and 47 less powerful patrol craft were needed. This was compared to the reality of three existing destroyers and eight support ships at the moment. Though King had assented to the thinking of the British, he still wanted destroyers hunting for German subs. The reason he was having such a hard time letting go of the old way was that, in American naval circles, the dominant idea had been, before the war, that convoys actually attract enemy subs. Better to have the destroyers constantly hounding the enemy so they were less likely to be on the offensive. Yes, the British said, but take that idea one step further. 
If convoys attract enemy subs, and they do, where better to have sub-killers than around a convoy? Two birds, one stone. To go back to President Wilson's analogy, why chase the hornets all over the farm versus wiping out their nest, applied. Indeed, it was in March when FDR wrote to Churchill about this very situation. Quote, My Navy has been definitely slack in preparing for this submarine war off our coast. You learned the lesson two years ago. We still have to learn it. Which was true enough. But London was worried that their cousins would not take the lesson to heart fast enough to help them. So, being motivated to be more proactive, London sent 24 armed trawlers that had been fishing in the North Sea to the American East Coast. By mid-March, they had reached their various destinations, New York, Norfolk, Charleston, and Boston. And, inspired by this idea, the commander of the 5th Naval District commandeered 35 American fishing boats and put them on patrols once they went through an overhaul. More good news for the East Coast. American factories that were building various warships and patrol planes were ramping up production, and those water and air craft were slowly but surely being fed into the defensive system along the coast. But as the first protected coastal convoy was to take place in mid-May, the eastern sea frontier of Admiral Andrews had one more option of protection should enough ships not be ready on time. Calling it the Bucket Brigade, like when firemen pass buckets of water along a chain, the idea was to set up guaranteed ports where ships could pull in for the night. This was based on the still erroneous idea that German subs like to only attack at night. Ironically, it was North Carolina's three capes, Cape Hatteras, Cape Lookout, and Cape Fear, which had caused countless deaths for the last few hundred years that were now going to serve the war effort. Each cape had shoals, that is, dangerous areas due to shallow water that helped form a bay, a place where ships could heave to for the night and be protected by coastal guns, minefields, guard ships, or all the above. Let the tricky pathways that shifted with the sands be a headache for the enemy for a change. Again, this idea of having a series of locations where ships could pull in for the night was borrowed from the British, but the Royal Navy got it from the Romans, who had used it during their duration in the British Isles. Added to this was one more option the British would recommend to the Americans, minefields. Before the war came to Europe, the British Admiralty had been working on measures to help protect various bays and ports, like the River Thames and Scapa Flow in the Orkney Islands. However, they would use this plan on far-off bases as well, like in Malta, Singapore, Hong Kong, and Alexandria in Egypt. Yet minefields were only one option in the deck of cards the British Royal Navy had to protect their anchorages. There was also anti-submarine nets that had gates, which could be opened, and booms or underwater listening devices, and magnetic detection devices. Putting all of these options before the Americans after Pearl Harbor, the U.S. Navy decided to incorporate one, 
mines to help shield the 43-mile waterway between Cape Cod and Cape Ann in Massachusetts. This minefield would help protect the ships near Boston that were waiting for the latest convoy to get underway. This came about in February of 1942 and mirrored what the British had done to protect the Thames estuary. And yet, after crunching some numbers, Admiral Andrews, not unlike Admiral King, decided against the mines near Boston. First, there would not be enough support vessels to keep up with the mines. Second, the more ships tending to the mines would be less ships hunting for German subs. And lastly, the mines were not patriotic. If an Allied ship hit a mine, no matter the reason, it would explode. Accidents happened all the time, but this accident would cost lives and materiel. No, Andrews had this idea put aside for the northern port city. So, this next part will have you, dear listeners, scratching your heads. Andrews' concerns were sound enough for the mines to be canceled up north. However, two months later, Admiral Andrews approved this same means to protect the Cape Hatteras anchorage. Again, Andrews' heart was in the right place. The older, slower ships needed a place to station themselves for the night while traveling between Cape Lookout along the southern Outer Banks and Chesapeake Bay, close to northern Virginia. Of course, this plan ignored the fact that the Germans had recently commenced daylight attacks, like against the SS Dixiero and the city of New York. Still, it was implemented and expected to reduce the number of sunken ships off the East Coast. By the end of May, 2,635 Mark VI naval contact mines had been laid in about 35 miles in clockwise formation from just north of Buxton on Cape Hatteras in a semicircle to the southern end of Ocracoke Island. And near the 8 o'clock hand, a passageway had been left open, not to mention a safe place near where the two islands met for the ships to put down their anchors. As each mine was held fast just below the surface and contained 300 pounds of TNT, it was hoped the Germans would only discover them too late. Now came the test. In mid-June, the standard oil tanker F.W. Abrams was guided in safely past the mines by a pilot boat of the U.S. Coast Guard. When the ship was ready to leave again the next morning, the pilot boat would have the larger ship follow it out of the ring of explosives. But as the Abrams was leaving, the captain, dealing with bad weather, had trouble keeping an eye on the lead ship. Suddenly, there was an explosion on the tanker's starboard side. First, the captain, thinking that they had been hit by a German torpedo, tried to drop anchor, but the cable would not let out. Clearly, it was damaged. Now the injured ship was drifting, the fog making it impossible for the pilot boat to locate its partner. Then the tanker drifted into two more mines. However, to the crew, they were convinced that a German sub was out there, giving them hell. Fortunately, the crew was able to abandon ship and reach Ocracoke Island. But the fallibility of warfare was just getting started. Two months later, a convoy had been heading east, but two of its ships were damaged by real enemy torpedoes. So these ships turned around 
and made for the closest land, which just happened to be Cape Hatteras. Both already damaged ships hit mines, and one of them went down. The next morning, two tugboats were sent out to find survivors, yet one of those then hit a mine and sunk. In a relatively short amount of time, the minefield was racking up numbers of sunken ships that would have impressed the Germans. Red-faced with anger, Admiral Andrews ordered the operation canceled, along with canceling plans for other minefields in other areas. For whatever reason, it wasn't until a year later that the U.S. Navy began removing the Hatteras mines. However, about only half were found and removed. In total, the U.S. Navy placed about 20,000 mines during the war, and not one Axis vessel was sunk by any of those. The only victims were the four Allied ships near Cape Hatteras. As the various American authorities were trying to figure things out, growing pains, if you will, the same was for the ever-increasing personnel on Ocracoke Island, just south of Hatteras. The island is known for being the place where the pirate Blackbeard died in November of 1718, of having the oldest lighthouse still in operation in North Carolina. It's known for its wild horses, and even today, its lack of development and low population. However, this last part was after the influx of people during the war years. Getting rid of the mines around Ocracoke Island, eventually, the Americans would take on other counter-tactics developed or improved by the British during the interwar years. One was the ultra-secret magnetic indicator loop, which was an underwater stationary loop of cables attached to a sensing equipment based on land. One such control station would be put on Ocracoke Island. Another building on the island would house the HF-DF, or Huff Duff, technology. Basically, high-frequency radio direction finding. This was able to help locate enemy subs far away from Cape Hatteras. Admiral Donitz would be in regular contact with his U-boats, but his belief was that, as long as the burst of communications was under 30 seconds, the signal was undetectable. However, the British, in constantly fine-tuning the Huff Duff, was able to locate the call in only 10 seconds. And with several stations picking up the signal, the location of the sub was found through triangulation. But however it happened, or why it happened, in this case not happening, Ocracoke's loop station did not contribute to the war effort, nor did the Navy's surface search radar system located there. Still, a significant amount of money was sunk into equipment on the island, and that equipment needed personnel to run it. No, in time, the convoy system, including coastal convoys, chased away the German subs, making all these countermeasures unneeded. But that was in the future. As the spring and summer of 1942 played itself out, more and more people arrived on Ocracoke with equipment to build the loop station and a section base with various support buildings. And just like that, the quiet of Ocracoke was gone. Now, because of the Great Depression, the younger people of the island were already gone, seeking work. Now buildings needed to go up, and that required workers. Hence, other young people 
mostly men, were coming to the island daily, and they were all strangers. The locals were not happy. Yet the location of the island was perfect for the Navy's needs. Each day, workers would show up on transport vessels. The place would become that much more noisy. The Coast Guard personnel, or Coasties, would have to give up their rather nice sleeping quarters to the naval personnel, and now were forced to sleep in the lighthouse keeper's house. Thirty men were sent to sleep in a place made for twelve. And all the while, the locals kept their distance. With the construction underway and the minefield needing patrolling, soon a leader of higher rank was justified, and that man was Captain Henry Coyle of the U.S. Coast Guard. Arriving in late June, in the same light as General William Slim of Burma or General Omar Bradley, the G.I.'s general, Coyle was equally concerned with the morale of his men as he was the effectiveness of the island's operations. When the island ran out of drinking water, Coyle would call up district headquarters and demand water. The previous commander, being a non-commissioned officer, had no such ability. Then, another reason for low morale came to Coyle's attention. It had been some months since the men were given leave, and they certainly weren't finding a place to let off steam, with the locals keeping their distance. So one morning, Coyle lined up his men on the docks and asked each and every man, How long have you been here? He already knew that none of them had been given leave to date. Many answered, four or five months, and Coyle could already see that there was nothing to do here besides fishing and swimming, and a man in his twenties needs a bit more than that. Alcohol was also not sold on the island. So the next day, two at a time, the men were given 72 hours leave, and Coyle personally made sure they got to the mainland or Hatteras Island just north any way he could. Morale rose, to be sure, but it remained a harsh environment. For some, too harsh. At the little Kinnikeet life-saving station just north of Avon, itself just north of Ocracoke, a young man shot himself in the hand in order to be evacuated from the island. Isolation, sprinkled with bad storms, and frequent rescue attempts to most times only bring back bodies, rattled the nerves of all who were there. Some simply could not handle it. It wasn't long before those stationed on Ocracoke began to call it the Siberia of the 5th Naval District, and no one hated it more than Theodore Ted Mutro. First, he hated the sand. He had never had to deal with it before, and now it was everywhere, in his hair, in his uniform, and always in his shoes. And he would get angry at the locals because they did not have to, and were smart enough not to, wear shoes. Further, he did not like their standoffness, when all he was trying to do was his job, and a part of his job was keeping them safe, which meant they had to follow the rules too, but they were probably not doing so. One night, Mutro was walking past one of the few places on the island, the Spanish casino, and some of its lights that were facing the ocean side were on, clearly a violation. So, having had enough of everything, he went in, complained about the lights and the jukebox, 
its sound carrying over the waves, and he told the locals to have it turned off by 11 p.m., that he would be back to check. Sure enough, Mutro returned. The lights were still on, and the music was still blaring. The song at the moment was, Just Remember Pearl Harbor. Being pushed past his limit by the whole situation of being on the island, Mutro pulled out his pistol, entered the building, and shot three times into the ceiling. He certainly had everyone's attention now. He yelled, I told you, the next shot is going into that jukebox. The people freaked out, exclaiming it was their only entertainment they had. But just then, a 21-year-old local girl, Ollie, stood up, walked over to Mutro, and got in his face. What is it about this place that you don't like? His reply, the whole damned place. It's the last stop in civilization. There was some more screaming between the two, but thankfully, no more shooting. In the next few days, Ollie Styron, the young lady, bumped into Mutro and offered to do his laundry. He got past his anger and agreed, as he was required to keep it clean. However, then she told him she was going to charge him 50 cents to get all the sand out. He exclaimed, Jesus Christ, I only make $36 a month. But Ollie, only smiling in response, was playing a larger game. Next, she started showing him around the island during his off time. She also got him to take off his shoes when they would walk around or when they went dancing. Mutro, not knowing what he was getting himself into, was just happy to be barefoot. Then the young lady took him to meet her mother, and dear old mom had oysters ready, which Mutro had never tried before. It took a few months, but the young man was starting to find things to like about Ocracoke. And in February of 1943, Ollie closed the deal. Taking one of their many walks, they just happened to be going in the direction of the local priest. The man of the cloth, who was more worldly than Mutro, said, Well, I see you finally got him, Ollie. Let's get it over with before he changes his mind. The same fate befell Ulysses L. Mac Womack, who had helped rescue a few of the British crew of the Empire Gem. He eventually married local Marie Spencer. In the coming months, as new recruits arrived on the island, Mutro and Womack would warn them, don't eat the oysters and keep those shoes on. Once you get Ocracoke sand between your toes, you'll never get it out. Many of these men who they worked with hated the place upon arrival, but they would spend the rest of their lives on Ocracoke Island. 